It will occur to you, my young friends, that the preceding discourse was occupied with an examination of some of the excuses with which youths are prone to put off the claims of religion. I would fain hope that there are those among you who have become satisfied of the worthlessness of these excuses and have resolved never more to plead one of them, not even at the bar of conscience. Nay, more, I would indulge the hope that you have not only given up your apologies, but that you have become impressed with the importance of your soul's salvation, insomuch that when you heard the text announced, your heart instantly responded to the sentiment contained in it, as one in which you have the deepest personal interest. In the hope which I have now expressed, it is my purpose in the present discourse to inquire into the meaning of this momentous question with a view to place distinctly before you that state of mind commonly called conviction of sin that you may be assisted on the one hand to decide upon the character of your religious impressions and on the other to gain such a view of your condition as shall be necessary to lead you to escape from the wrath to come. What, then, is the import of the question contained in the text, What must I do to be saved? Number one. I observe first it is a language of deep feeling. There are comparatively few in Christian communities who are not ready to give a general assent to the truth of the gospel, and far the larger part, at least among ourselves, will not hesitate to avow their belief of the most humbling of its doctrines, of the deep depravity of man, and of their own personal guilt and pollution. They will profess not to entertain a doubt, and yet... The practical influence of this belief is absolutely nothing. With an avowed conviction that they are constantly exposed to the miseries of the second death, they go their way, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise, and yield themselves up to the cares or the follies of the world, apparently with as much avidity and as little apprehension as if there were no heaven to be gained or lost. Nay, there are those who not only profess to believe the truths of which I have spoken, but in words contend earnestly for their importance, in whose hearts they have never produced a throb of anxiety, and over whose path they have never cast a shade of gloom. The truth is that their belief of them is merely speculative. There is nothing in it to rouse or agitate or subdue the soul. In spite of it, the sinner may slumber, even on the borders of the world of despair. Far different is the spirit which prompted the inquiry in the text, and which discovers itself in the exercises of every convinced sinner. There is here not only the assent of the understanding, but the feeling of the heart. The sinner not only speculatively believes his guilt and danger, but practically realizes it. In the one case, the truth which he believes are like objects seen in the mist or by twilight. In the other, they resemble objects viewed in the brightness of noonday. In the one case, it is as if you were to contemplate some temporal calamity, of which you regarded yourself in little or no danger. In the other... It is as if you were to contemplate the same calamity 
while you were actually sinking under its power. I have said that the question in the text indicates deep feeling, but I do not mean that it is in all cases alike. With some, it is little more than settled seriousness. With others, it is strong anxiety. And with others still, it is unmixed agony. This variety of experience may be referred to a difference in the original constitution of the mind, or in the previous moral habit, or in the instruction which is communicated, or many other circumstances which may or may not fall within our observation. But in every case the truth is felt, not merely assented to, it seizes hold of the active principles of the soul, and is not kept locked up in the intellect. Number two, this is the language of strong self-condemnation, the process by which the sinner becomes impressed with a sense of his guilt, originates in the new view which he gains of the divine law. Hitherto, his views of that law have been loose and vague. He has practically regarded it as taking cognizance only of the external act, and not improbably has flattered himself that if he were decent in his outward deportment, he should thereby yield an obedience to the law which might be accepted as a ground of his justification. But under the enlightening influence of the Holy Spirit, his mistakes on the subject are all corrected, and the law of God, instead of being regarded as little more than a dead letter, is felt like the omniscient eye to be a searcher of the heart and like the Almighty Hand, to operate with resistless energy. It is seen, moreover, to be altogether worthy of its author, perfectly reasonable, and just in its requisitions, an admirable transcript of the moral perfections of God. Now you easily see how this new view of the divine law operates to produce conviction of guilt. If the law has its foundation in everlasting righteousness, and is perfectly holy, just, and good, if it is that which binds together the moral kingdom of Jehovah, and is in an exact expression of His will in respect to all His intelligent creatures, then how bitter a thing must sin be, which is the violation of this law, how deserving of God's supreme abhorrence must be that evil which pours contempt upon his character and insolently tramples upon his authority. It is in view of the moral excellence of the law, then, that the sinner discovers and estimates the inherent odiousness of sin. But in estimating his own personal guilt, he more especially takes into view the extent of its requisitions, considering it as designed to control the inner man of the heart, as extending to every thought and purpose and motive and desire through every period of man's existence. How differently does a sinner now estimate the number of his sins from what he did before he practically understood the comprehensive import of God's law? Time has been, it may be, when he scarcely considered himself a sinner at all, and when if he had undertaken to reckon with his conscience, he would have thought only of flagrant acts of transgression, and would have estimated the guilt even of them chiefly by their untoward influence upon society. But now he is almost exclusively occupied in calling up sins of the heart, 
sins of every day and hour and moment, sins of which the world never took cognizance, and of which at the time they were committed he scarcely took cognizance himself. He sees that he has been living in constant rebellion against God, and that he has steadily and perseveringly refused a practical acknowledgement of his authority, and that, too, against motives of the most tender and affecting import. He charges himself with the blackest ingratitude, for when he looks back upon his past life, he sees that he has been continually led by a most gracious hand, and that blessings have constantly multiplied in his path. And yet he beholds no monuments of grateful homage, no Ebenezer's on which is inscribed, Hitherto hath the Lord helped me. Perhaps he has been a diligent attendant on the means of grace, has been regularly at the sanctuary, and it may be he has even daily read the scriptures, and sometimes fallen on his knees and taken on his lips the language of devotion. And in all this he may have formerly thought that he was doing much to commend himself to the divine favor. But now he sees nothing better in these services, by which he has deceived himself, and perhaps deceived others also, than the holy homage of a formalist. And here, as truly as anywhere, he reads the sentence of his condemnation. How many complaining reflections does he find to have indulged against God, because he may have sometimes in mercy blasted his foolish purposes, or withheld from him something which, if it had been bestowed, would have ministered only to his destruction. How large a part of all the thoughts that he has ever had does he find on review to have been vain and evil. How many of his words have been idle and frivolous, how many of his purposes have originated in pride or revenge? How many of his desires have been polluted and groveling? How many actions to which the eye of man have appeared praiseworthy and even noble does he now perceive to have been dictated not merely by a spirit of forgetfulness of God, but by a spirit of active rebellion against him? In short, his sins of omission or commission, of heart or life, appear as numerous as the moments of his existence, and that he feels that an effort to recall them all to remembrance were as vain as to attempt to count the drops in the ocean. But while the convinced sinner dwells with astonishment on the number of his sins, or rather finds them literally innumerable, he is equally overwhelmed by a sense of their aggravation, he perceived that they are not the sins of a heathen who has never heard of Christ or salvation, but they have been committed, it may be, in the very brightest sunshine of gospel day. They have been committed while the Bible, with all its awful warnings and all its gracious invitation, and all its treasures of mercy has been within his reach, while the Sabbath has weakly dawned upon him, and the sanctuary has opened its doors for him, and the ministers of Christ have spread before him the provision of the gospel, and have expostulated with him to attend to the thing that belongs to his peace. They have been committed, moreover, in spite of the kind rebukes and earnest entreaties of pious friendship in spite of the remonstrances of his own conscience, in spite of the strivings of the Holy Spirit, in spite of all the condescension, the agonies, and the intercession of Jesus, 
in spite of the proffered glories of heaven and the threatened woes of perdition, the fact that he has sinned against so much light and love and that he has persevered in sinning when there were so many considerations to deter him from it seems to him to stamp upon his guilt a peculiarly aggravated character. And then again he perceives how perfectly vain and foolish were the excuses with which he had quieted himself in a sinful course. He is compelled to give them all to the wind and to feel that he stands before God without the shadow of an apology. Does he justify his past neglect of religion on the ground that he had no time to attend to it? Or on the ground that, in attending upon the means of grace, he had done all that was in his power to do? Or on the ground that there would be a future more convenient season? No such thing. He feels that his sins have altogether been voluntary and causeless, and have exposed him most justly to God's threatened curse. It is a common case that a sinner in these circumstances actually believes himself to be the most guilty of all beings, even worse than the reprobate in hell. For while he can invent apologies for others, he cannot for a moment admit any for himself. He is not, indeed, as some dreaming speculatist would have it, willing to encounter eternal perdition, but that he deserves it is as clear to him is that the light shines around him amidst the brightness of noonday. He wonders that such a wretch as himself is permitted to breathe the air, or enjoy the light, or walk upon the earth, and it is difficult for him to believe that his next remove will not be to the prison of despair. I have already intimated that there is, in some respects, a great variety in the experience of convinced sinners, some being far more deeply affected than others, but in every case which issues in conversion, there is not only a general conviction of the evil of sin, but a particular conviction of personal guilt, and of the justice of the sentence which dooms to God's everlasting displeasure. This conviction may be acquired suddenly, or it may be acquired gradually. It may be more or less pungent, but in some form or other, and in some degree or other, it makes part of the experience of every sinner who is brought to a practical knowledge of the excellence and glory of the gospel. Number three, this is the language of earnest solicitude. Enough has been said to show that the disclosures which are made to the convinced sinner by the Spirit of God must render him in no small degree unhappy, and such a state necessarily produces solicitude both in respect to the present and the future. It is natural that the sinner should earnestly desire a deliverance from the burden that now oppresses him, and from the appalling doom which conscience bids him anticipate in the next world. If there were nothing more than his present condition concerned, there would be a good reason why he should long for a change, for such a condition is always unhappy, and often wretched beyond our most gloomy conceptions. What Christian, especially what minister of Christ, has not witnessed cases in which the sinner in the circumstances which I am supposing has been stung by remorse, agitated by terror, convulsed by agony, 
to such a degree that life itself has seemed a burden and the aspect of despair has settled upon the countenance and even the grave has been longed for if it might but prove a refuge from the lashes of a guilty conscience. But where the operations of the spirit assume a milder form, and the impressions of guilt are far less pungent, there is still enough in the sinner's condition to cause him earnestly to desire that he may escape from it. For he feels that while this burden hangs upon his conscience, the world is nothing better to him than a prison, overspread with darkness and hung round with despair. But if the sinner is anxious, and with good reason too, to escape from the miseries of his present condition, much more is he desirous to escape from the accumulated woes which await the ungodly in the world of despair. He realizes that there is an awful meaning in the description which the Bible has given of the future and eternal miseries of the lost, and he ponders the fearful imagery in which these miseries are described, till his heart throbs and sinks with apprehension. Here again, is it strange that he is anxious to escape from this tremendous doom? Rather, would it not be passing strange if with such a view of the danger of his condition he could fold his arms and lull himself into an indolent security? It is not always easy for the sinner, in the state which I am supposing, to analyze the operations of his own mind. And if it is difficult for him to understand the nature of his emotions, he is still more perplexed to know in what manner he may obtain peace. Often the most that he can say respecting himself is that there is an intolerable burden resting upon his conscience, that he knows not which way to look for relief, that all around him and before him is impenetrable darkness. And not unfrequently, the burden of his anxiety is that, with such just occasion for distress, he feels so little, and while to all others but himself he seems to be on the borders of despair, he imagines that he is utterly destitute of moral sensibility. In these circumstances, he adopts in many respects a new course of life. If he has been accustomed to mingle in scenes of levity, he mingles in such scenes no longer. The Bible and other religious books, which he has been used to treat with entire neglect, he reads with most earnest attention. He rejoices in the opportunity, though he often does it with great defiance, to unbosom himself to his minister or some Christian friend, and to receive appropriate instruction and counsel. He is often found in the meeting for prayer in religious conference, and still oftener in his closet, pouring out the anguish of his heart before God. You may tell him that a sinner ought not to pray, but the false direction he will not heed. For though he feels no confidence that he shall be saved, let him do what he will. Yet if he is saved, he is sure that it must be by an act of God's sovereign grace. And that grace he has no reason to expect if he does not supplicate it. His former careless associates, not improbably during this period, look on with amazement, and perhaps treat his serious impressions with ridicule. But what avails all their ridicule with him, so long as his eyes are open to survey the appalling realities of his condition?
Do you ask whether in all this striving of which I have here spoken, the sinner advances any nearer to the kingdom of God, or to a regenerate state? I answer, yes, undoubtedly, though I would guard the answer by an explanation. It is far from being true that the sinner, by any effort he can make, does anything in the way of merit towards committing himself to the divine favor, nor do any of his moral exercises preparatory to renovation partake of a holy character. Nevertheless, these efforts seem designed in the economy of God's grace to prepare him to accept a free salvation. And though there be nothing of a moral character in the prayers that are offered previous to conversion, which God can regard with approbation, yet there is in the natural feeling of distress, and who can tell but that he who hears the cries of the young ravens may not listen to the cry of the convinced sinner? To whatever conclusions men may be conducted on the subject by metaphysical speculation, all experience unites with the word of God in proving that, though the sinner who is only convinced will as certainly perish as any other, yet the convinced sinner is, in an important sense, nearer the kingdom than the careless sinner, not because he has a particle of holiness, but because he has exercises which, in the order of nature, are preparatory to a spiritual renovation. If our Lord himself could say of a mere moral man that he was not far from the kingdom of God, Surely we need not hesitate to apply the same language to a sinner trembling under the burden of conviction. I have now laid before you, my young friend, so far as I have judged necessary, the exercises in the condition of a sinner in what is usually termed a state of conviction. In this situation I must for the present leave him. It is natural to infer, in the first place, from the preceding remarks, how far you may go and finally fall short of heaven. Are you at this moment an anxious and heavy-laden sinner? Have your iniquities taken hold upon you so that you are not able to look up? And are you trembling under the apprehensions of Jehovah's wrath? Have you forsaken the haunts of levity and broken away from vain companions? And have you taken up the resolution that you will press forward and enter in at the straight gate? Believe, Believe me, so far as this you may go and even farther and yet perish in your sin. All this you may be today and the world may have begun to regain its ascendancy over you tomorrow. And before you are yet scarcely aware of any change, you may find yourself again in the ranks of the gay and careless. Nay, you may continue in this very state till you die. You may always remain a serious inquirer for the way to heaven, and may even lie at its very gate, and yet after all may never enter it. Wherefore, I entreat you not to rest satisfied in your present condition. It would be to no purpose that you should discover that some distressing worldly calamity was hanging over you, unless a discovery should lead you to do something to avert it. Nor will it be of any avail that you see yourselves exposed to eternal perdition, unless you actually make haste to escape from the wrath to come. Let the effect of the disclosures already made to you by the Spirit of God lead you to action, else you will not only perish, but perish with a doom aggravated by the very act, 
that you have been the subject of serious convictions. Number two, learn from this subject that it is a most solemn thing, especially for a young person to be awakened. It is indeed a solemn thing for any person, because he is thereby brought under the direct influence of the Spirit of God, and in the result of the Spirit's operation is probably to be decided the question whether his immortal soul is to be saved or lost, whether his path through life is to be cheered by the hopes and consolations of religion, and it terminate amid the bright glories of the upper world, or whether he is to go laboring through this veil of tears without any substantial support, often disgusted and never satisfied with what the world has to bestow, and finally to sink down under the withering frown of the Almighty and be banished from his presence forever. I say then that the fearful result which is pending renders the case of any awakened sinner peculiarly solemn. But the case of a young person in such circumstances gathers additional interest from the fact that he is surrounded with peculiar temptations to abandon his convictions and return to a habit of carelessness. For in his case, there are gay companions to be forsaken, and there are scenes of merriment to be abandoned, in which it may be the individual concerned has been specially active. And not improbably, there is a hiss of contempt or the frown of indignation to be encountered from those who have been accustomed to greet him as one of themselves. Oh, when I see a young person in these circumstances, I tremble, because I expect that the decision he is about to make will be for eternity, and I see much reason to fear that his decision will be wrong. Number three. This leads me to say thirdly, that those youth who dare to trifle with the serious convictions of their companions are in the very broadest part of the road to destruction. They trifle with the immediate influence of the Spirit of God. They cast contempt upon the most benevolent work which He ever performs for mortals. They make a direct and most dreadful attempt to thwart the gracious purposes of heaven and plunge an immortal soul into everlasting burnings. If I suppose there were a single youth before me who bore the character of a scoffer, I would say to him, Beware, beware, how you ever speak lightly again of the work of the Holy Spirit, as possibly some of you may have been guilty of the essence of this sin, when you have thought little about it. When you met your brother or sister whose countenance wore an aspect of anxiety, and you purposely threw out some light and careless remark, or perhaps cast a significant smile, as if in derision, know that that brother or sister felt it at the heart as a cruel and cutting rebuke. And know, too, that he who takes an account of all your actions recorded it as an insult shown to his authority and an attempt to counteract the influences of his spirit. And when, as you were passing off the threshold of this house, you met some companion whom you had seen melted under the warnings or invitations which had just been announced, and when you took that companion by the hand and said, Come, let us go and talk of the pleasures of the past week, or project plans of amusement for the week to come, Know, too, that you were then opposing the operations of the Spirit of God and aiming a murderous dagger at the soul of your friend. I say nothing which is not the result of solemn conviction when I declare that I would a thousand times rather my dearest friend should come and trifle with my last agonies and dance around the bed on which my cold and motionless body was stretched and close my dying eyes with a loud peal of water than to have him approach me with ridicule when my heart was burdened with conviction. For in the one case he would only chill the last blood that passeth through my veins, in the other he might awaken everlasting agonies in my soul. Finally, 
I dare not close this discourse without urging you, though in doing so I should seem to anticipate my next subject, to an immediate compliance with the terms of the gospel. Because if I should be spared to stand in this place again to answer the question, what shall I do to be saved? Some of you may before that time have heard your last sermon and have passed into that world where the voice of instruction cannot reach you. I call upon you then to attend without delay to this momentous concern, to obey the command of God, to give Him your heart, and I seem to hear a call in everything around me, conveying to you a similar admonition. There is a call from above, which I recognize is coming from the throne of God, and inviting you to all the glories of His kingdom. There is a call from below, which seems to come from the abodes of darkness, echoing groans and agonies and tortures, warning you to beware how you withhold your heart from God another day. There is a call from within, which bids you take care and not sacrifice your immortal souls. There is a call in the memory of departed worldly joy, admonishing you that they are worthless and bidding you seek superior bliss. There is a call from the dying bed of the Christian and the dying bed of the sinner, the one pointing upward by way of invitation to the glories of heaven and the other downward by way of admonition to the horrors of hell. But above all, there is a call from the cross of Calvary, from the Savior in the act of dying for your redemption, and His language is, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Morning, sinner, that call is to you, to no mortal more than you. Away then with all this halting and hesitating and accept of Jesus, and your conscience will be at rest. Your soul will be full of peace and hope, and joy will descend from heaven and take up her dwelling in your bosom. Lecture 10, Embracing Religion, Acts 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. In this passage, we have the Apostle's answer to the momentous question of the jailer, to which your attention was directed in the preceding lecture. As I endeavored there to exhibit before you the process preparatory to becoming a Christian, usually styled conviction of sin, I design now to advance a step further and call your attention to that great change which the soul experiences in passing from death unto life. You perceive, my young friends, that we have now reached a most interesting point in human experience. But I fear I have already advanced one step farther than most of you have been prepared to accompany me, and that in bringing before you the case of a convinced sinner, I have turned your thoughts to a subject upon which you have not to this hour had any experience. Nevertheless, I cannot stay at present to reason with you in respect to the guilt or danger of your condition. I will only put the question to your conscience, whether the fact that you cannot go along with me any farther may not have a fearfully ominous bearing upon your eternal destiny. There are some I would fain hope before me who do realize all that was described in the preceding discourse, and who have come this morning earnestly desiring to have the great question answered, in what way they may obtain the pardon of their sins, the blessing of a pacified conscience, and a title to eternal life. It is for such youth, especially that this discourse is designed, and may God the Holy Spirit bring it home to their hearts with a subduing and all-gracious energy. It may be worthwhile before proceeding to consider the direction which the Apostle in our text gives to a convinced sinner to advert 
for a moment to some false directions which ye advocates of error of various classes are wont to give in similar circumstances. For if there be any subject on which it is important that you should accurately discriminate between truth and error, and on which from various circumstances you are in danger of being misled, it is in respect to the terms of your acceptance with God. One class of advisors will tell you that in order to be saved you must maintain a correct deportment before the world, and especially that you must be honest in your intercourse with your fellow men. They say that God is not a hard master, that if your lives are such that you obtain a good report among men, no doubt you will stand acquitted by your judge. And is it so, then, that he who looks directly at the heart will estimate the character of actions merely by the outward appearance? Or will he who is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity connive at the prevalence of a spirit of rebellion in the heart? merely because the lips and the hands and the body are moved in a way that does not interfere with the worldly interest of our fellow men. They who give this direction to the inquiring sinner are guilty of making Jehovah altogether such a one as themselves. To say nothing of God's word, reason spurns at such a prescription for a guilty conscience and assures the sinner that if he adopts it, he must be at the expense of losing his soul. Another class, advancing a step farther, will tell you that if you would be saved, you must not only be sober and moral, but generous, affectionate, benevolent. These traits, you are told, constitute the moral perfection of human nature, and will ensure to you an entrance into heaven. Such advisers confound naturally amiable tempers and gracious affections, making no difference between the exalted principle of love to God and gratitude to the Savior. And those instinctive qualities which belong to us in common with some of the brute creation. They deny the doctrine of human depravity and maintain that there is no necessity of a divine influence to sanctify the heart. How can this answer be given when the Bible everywhere proclaims the doctrine that man is dead in trespasses and sins? And that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The third class will tell you, that more is necessary in order to salvation than is comprehended in either of the two preceding directions, that there are duties which you owe to God as well as man, that besides being honest and benevolent in your intercourse with the world, you are bound to read the Bible and pray and attend church, but it, that if you will do this, all will be well. These are pharisaical guides. They think to catch and please the eye of omniscience by a round of external duties, when the heart has no part nor lot in the matter. They are chargeable with mistaking the means for the end, with substituting rights and forms for the life and power of godliness. A fourth class will acknowledge that we are sinners and cannot be saved except by the atonement of Christ. They say, however, that by our good works we may merit salvation in part, and that the righteousness of Christ will be appropriated to supply the deficiency. In opposition to this theory, the Bible uniformly represents man as having contracted a debt to divine justice, which he can do nothing to cancel, as being altogether dependent for salvation on God's rich and sovereign mercy, and is ascribing the glory of his salvation to his Redeemer's blood and righteousness. A fifth class will answer the awakened sinner's inquiry by saying that nothing is necessary to salvation, but a simple reliance on the merits of Christ, without any regard to the temper of the heart, or the conduct of the life. The law, they will say, has been magnified by Christ's death in such a sense 
that we are released from its obligation. And if only you believe that he died for you in particular, you need give yourself little concern about personal holiness. Thus says the unblushing antinomian, that too in the very face of the declaration that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. But none of these directions, methinks I hear you say, yield any solid peace to my soul. I feel that I am a condemned sinner and need the expiation of my guilt. I feel that I am a polluted sinner and need the aid of a sanctifying power. I feel that I have no righteousness of my own and I need one that is perfect. My soul sinking under the burden of its sins turns away from these blind guides and looks anxiously round for some relief but finds none till it reposes in the simple answer contained in my text. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What then, you will inquire, is the nature of that faith on which is suspended so momentous a result? I answer, it includes as one of its primary elements an intellectual assent to the great truths of the gospel, especially that which constitutes its most prominent and glorious feature, the doctrine of redemption by the blood of Christ. I dare not say that in some cases in which the opportunity does not exist for becoming acquainted with the truth, the Spirit of God may not, in some mysterious way, exert His renewing influence upon the heart. Though if the fact be so, the Word of God has given us no intimation of it. Nor would I venture to say with how much indistinctness this doctrine may be viewed, or with how much erroneous speculation it may be connected, and still be the power of God unto salvation. But I may say with confidence that no person with a Bible in his hand can intellectually reject this doctrine and yet believe to the salvation of his soul. The fact that Jesus Christ, by the peculiar constitution of his person, is fitted to be our mediator, that in this character he has made an atonement for sin, in virtue of which God can be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly, and that this atonement constitutes the only ground of hope to the sinner, so much as this, it would seem, must be understood and assented to as the first step towards exercising evangelical faith, these facts you are to believe, just as you would believe any other facts which come to you established by proper testimony. But notwithstanding this intellectual assent, of which I have spoken to the doctrine of redemption by the blood of Christ, as one of the essential constituents of saving faith, it does not of itself constitute it. You may believe this truth intellectually, and you may even be fierce advocates for it. And after all, it remain in your mind as a dead letter, and you may die in your sin. If you will have that faith which ensures salvation, the truth must descend from the head to the heart. It must assert and maintain its dominion over the affections, thus purifying the fountains of moral action, and becoming the seed of all Christian graces, and gradually bringing the whole man into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Saving faith, then, is a practical, influential belief of the Scripture doctrine of redemption. The truth is first received into the understanding, and then exerts its legitimate influence upon the heart. And this influence discovers itself first in an act of self-abasement, or giving up every idea of personal merit, and then in an act of self-consecration, or giving up the whole soul to God, in humble reliance on the merits of Christ to be employed in His service, to be disposed of at His pleasure, and to be saved by His sovereign mercy. It may be that the intellectual views of the sinner have in all this undergone little or no change. He may have always been as evangelical in his opinions as he is now, but his faith, 
Instead of being a cold assent as formerly, is now a cordial confidence. Instead of exerting no influence, it is a powerful principle of action. Who does not perceive that this representation is exactly coincident with that of the Apostle when he says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. But you will inquire whether there are not other truths beside the great doctrine of redemption, which it belongs to evangelical faith to receive, and which are fitted to constrain the affections and influence alive. I answer, there is no truth revealed in the Bible which we are not required to believe, not only with the understanding, but with the heart, and none which is not fitted to exert a practical influence. Nevertheless, it is the doctrine of Christ crucified than which the Apostle determined not to know anything else in his preaching, the reception of which is more immediately concerned in the sinner's justification. For in practically believing this, the sinner lets go his own righteousness as a ground of justification and rests entirely on the atoning blood and perfect righteousness of her. Moreover, this truth is to be regarded not only as a cardinal doctrine of the Christian system, but when viewed in all its connections, as constituting the entire system, so that he who believes it intelligibly actually believes the whole gospel. And hence you readily perceive that any error in religious faith becomes important, as it is more or less nearly connected with the doctrine of redemption by the blood of Christ, just as an error in the constitution of a building becomes more serious, the more intimately it is related to the foundation. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.